Hello, I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, creator of the Incandescent Radio Network, here with my friend and colleague, Tony Farmer, host of the Black Lives Matter radio show. We are thrilled you are here with us today. So let's get started. Hello, and welcome to the Black Lives Matter radio show on the Incandescent Radio Network. I am Hope Katz Gibbs, creator of Incandescent Incorporated and Incandescent Radio, where podcasts, for you are coming from all kinds of wonderful people, including tonight's guest, Susie Love, who is talking to us from her home in Southern California. Uh, Your host is Tony Farmer from DC, and I'm here in New Mexico, so we're all across the country this evening. Um, But I am thrilled to introduce you all to Susie because she is one of my favorite people. We met when I was a graduate student at Claremont Graduate University in the psychology department, and Susie was a classmate of mine in a class called Good Work, uh, taught by a woman named Jean Nakamura, who's a world-class, world-famous positive psychologist. And Susie and I were the oldest students in the class, and we sat in the corner when we'd go to class discussion, and they'd ask us questions, and we'd huddle, and we'd try and figure things out and figure out what they were trying to teach us. But mostly we just had these wonderful conversations. It wasn't until the end of the semester that Susie told me that she was a rock star, a pop star in Sweden in the 80s. And I'm like, no way! This amazing woman who was getting her PhD in education and we're sitting here talking about what the meaning of good work is. And here she was like a rock star. So that's just the beginning of who she is and what she has accomplished and what she's going to accomplish. So Tony, I throw it over to you and have a ball. Thank you, Hope. Susie, welcome to Black Lives Radio Show, Black Lives Matter Radio Show. And we are so happy that you've taken the time out to spend some time with us and talk to us about who you are and and what you want people to know about you. Um, I grew up an army brat, which means that I moved a lot. You, my goodness, from Ann Arbor, Michigan to uh, uh, California to Sweden. Tell us a little bit about that. So I tell everybody this very, very funny story. Okay. When I was little, uh, I lived in the country, in the woods, in the middle, in the middle of my grandfather's cornfield. And he had about 200 acres in Michigan. So when each of his children married, he gave all of them land to build a house. Anyway. uh, So, you know, we, go outside and play. Of course, all we had was grass and <laughs> uh, and corn. But, you know, I, I don't know, ever since I was very, very young, probably four or five years old, I always wanted to go somewhere else. And so um, when I would go outside and play, I would play a game with my sister. And the game was called Gilligan's Island. Okay. Okay. And we lived near an airport. And so what we would do is I would go outside and I would say, okay, when you see an airplane, I said, jump up and down and say, help, help. (laughs) (laughs) Get me out of here. Help. (laughs) Okay. And so, um, you know, I, I tell that story because eventually, you know, my mother's job transferred her to California. And um, I went to school one day, I was in fifth grade, and my 
teacher in fifth grade, one of my favorite teachers, Mr. Henniger, showed a movie about the development of California. And when I saw that movie in fifth grade, I was like, that's my spot. Okay. All right. And when my mother came home from work that day, I told my mother, I said, mom, I said, guess what? I said, we're going to move to California. <laughs> and my mother just got this stunned look on her face. And uh, little did I know it, but my mother's boss had actually been talking to her about making a transfer to California. So, wow. you know, that's my story of of my journey to California. Now, my journey to Sweden is also, you know, it's it's just out of a crazy movie script. When I was in high school, uh, so we moved around a lot. Finally, we ended up in the Inland Empire, you know, and so ended up at my high school, which was uh, in La Puente, California. I was only at the school for one semester. And uh, then the next year was my senior year. So this is during my senior year, I took a tennis class. And so when I took this tennis class, I met this guy in my tennis class. And this mm -hmm. guy was from Sweden. He was like a Swedish exchange student. Now, Nogales High School was pretty much at that time, all Mexican and Black. And okay. this guy is a <laughs> like an exchange student from Sweden. And so I really don't know what happened, but we were immediately like just became friends and we were stuck together for the entire year. So finally, uh, at the end of the year uh, and my mother also, she, you know, treated him just like he was one of us. He went everywhere with us, you know, anyway. Finally, at the end of the year, he says, well, you know, Suzette, I, I think I'm going to invite you to come to my house in Sweden. I said, boy, are you crazy? <laughs> my sister and I just laughed. We're like, your dad is not going to let you bring some black girl up in his house. Are you out of your mind? Right, right. He said, I can do whatever I want to do. And he calls his dad on the phone and he tells his dad, I'm just letting you know I'm going to bring my friend Suzette home. Okay, so just get ready. <laughs> Let's deal with it. Deal with it, Dad. So, exactly. And, uh, you know, he was very typical Swedish guy, tall, blonde hair, blue eyes. And so the next year, my, my mom and my uh, stepdad gave me a ticket. And that ticket was so expensive. I mean, they had to sacrifice. It was a thousand dollars for me to get on that plane. And so, um, and I went to Sweden and actually in the beginning, I was going to stay for a year and go to school, mm -hmm. but I kind of got culture shock and chickened out. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I spent the entire summer with he and his family and we have been the, the best of, he's like my oldest friend. He, we have been the best of friends ever since we are still in contact with each other, still call each other. So now we have to fast forward again okay. to another crazy story. Sure. So I decide that I am going to be an exchange student when I'm at Cal State Fullerton. Okay. So I wanted to go to France because I decide I'm going to double major in French and political science, blah, blah, blah. 
And my mom's like, oh, no, you're not going to France. It's crazy over there. Those people are crazy. And I was like, what? I said, I'm studying French. That doesn't make sense. And she's like, well, you know, you already know people in, uh, you already know people in Sweden. I already know Lars' family. And so you need to go to Sweden. I said, I don't know. I haven't studied anything about Sweden. <laughs> she's like, well, you better learn something because you're not going to France. So I ended up you know, because of that association, deciding that I was going to go to Sweden. So huh, I went to Sweden and my program in Sweden was Russian and East European studies. Okay. After I had, so the first part of the program was that you had to learn Swedish in order to go to Uppsala University. So I did Swedish for, uh, let's see, we had Swedish for five months, five hours a day, five days a week. And not that I could speak Swedish when I was done, but I took the classes. <laughs> right. But anyway, um, but the, here's the thing. My, one of my Swedish teachers, actually both of my Swedish teachers, inter interestingly enough, were musicians. And so one of them had uh, a band. And, you know, he heard me singing some random Christmas song, okay? And he was like, oh, you have a really great voice. Have you ever thought about maybe singing professionally? I said, yeah, my mom's not having it. Um, right, right. right. <laughs> so I might have uh, thought about it, but mama's I, might, I thought about it. But, you know, my mother was like, you better go to school <laughs> so I can get my money's worth out of you. <laughs> so um, he invited me, actually, to sing with his band. So there's a guy in his band who had a brother and they were DJs. And that's kind of where it began with me being a, a performer, you know, a Swedish pop star because I met them. And like immediately when I met them, they were like, oh, hey, you know, we're, we're thinking about, uh, you know, kind of starting a band and getting a record contract. I'm like, uh-huh, next. Yeah. <laughs> So right before I get ready to go home, well, I went into the studio. I recorded a couple of things with them, right? And uh, I didn't think about it a whole lot because I was in school. So mm -hmm. finally, I'm getting ready to go home, like two days before I'm going home. And they're like, guess what? We got a record deal. I was like, oh, my God. I said, my mother's going to kill me. <laughs> And I was like, oh no. So, you know, I had a, I had a conversation with them because, you know, the students get a host family mm -hmm. and I got the best family. I'm telling you, these people treated me like I was their child. So I went to my Swedish mom and I was like, you know, Birgitta, I, I don't know what to do. Like, first of all, I'm scared to tell my mother. And secondly, should I take this opportunity? What should I do? And she was like, well, you know, just try, see what happens. Mm -hmm. You never know. She said, um, it's an opportunity and you might regret it if you don't try. And so I, you know, got on the phone with my mom and my dad that night. And I, you know, I said, you know, uh, I kind of signed a record deal. And my mom was <laughs> like, ah! Oh, mom and dad, yeah, I went to school and everything. Went, yeah, exactly. oh, and by the she way, I signed a record deal. So it, I'll be And that's kind of how around. the conversation went. <laughs> By the way, and my mother's like, I didn't send you over there to 
become a rock star? I said, it's not really a rock band, but she was like, <laughs> right. so, um, you know, so that's kind of where it all began with that. But yeah, I have always felt that I wanted to kind of journey around the world and see what was out there. Um, so I would imagine that the work you did, by the way, the name of the band was called Vibe. Vibe, uh, yeah. Vibe, and uh, a mix of jazz and hip hop and a number of different genres kind of uh, exactly. mashed together. But I, I, I imagine that you did end up touring France. Um, no, I didn't go on a tour to France, but I, I did end up touring all over Sweden. I did go to London. Um, you know, and that would have, you know, traveling around Europe because we were released all over Europe and Japan. And uh, we were like the number one band in Sweden for, you know, many weeks. Uh, we had our stuff on, on the top of the charts there. And so I'm really proud of that. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm the first African-American woman who ever, you know, was signed a record deal, you know, in that country uh, on a soul label. It was actually a label dedicated to soul music. So um, I, I'm really happy about that. So yeah. here's this young woman from California at this point who goes to school and ends up a pop star. Yeah, it was crazy. And that that is one of the most fascinating stories that I think I've I've ever heard. What was it like <laughs> culturally for you personally to one trying to fit into this this environment that you didn't grow up in, trying to be a student, yeah. and then all of a sudden this fame right? Uh, people yeah. knowing who you were and wherever you yeah, went. Exactly. Um, how, how, how did you manage that? Uh, well, first of all, um, so it was after I finished my, you know, my year, my study abroad year, and then I went back. And, um, you know, the thing is, we were kind of just coming along you know, be, beginning to, for, it was the beginning of people getting to know our band and who we were. But culturally, first of all, I credit my friend from Sweden who was so good, you know, when I went and stayed with his family, he taught me so much about Swedish culture. His, his grandfather was actually uh, the assistant to the King of Sweden for many years. And so his grandparents were, you know, um, uh, kind of really, uh, I, what can I say? I, I met his grandmother and his grandmother was like an expert on Swedish culture, basically. And just going to her home for dinner was an, you know, was an education session. So I learned from them. And uh, so when I went back as an exchange student, I was somewhat acclimated to the way the culture worked. Uh, and for me, I really love learning, you know, just like you, I'm a lifetime mm -hmm. learner. And I just, I'm just a sponge. I absorb everything. And the one thing that I learned is the key to being able to enjoy yourself in another culture is that you got to learn the language. If you don't learn the language, you are, you still have a barrier, you know, to cross. 
once you learn the language, I think people are so much more at ease because they don't have to struggle with their, their language. And, um, you know, the conversations are much more, it's more, much more delightful, you know? So I would say having all those Swedish classes really paid off in the end because I ended up living there for five more years. So, um, yeah. And during that time I did, I, I really learned a lot about the culture, the history. In fact, my friends at the, my Swedish friends at the university, we would, you know, their documentaries would come on TV and, and I'd be like watching these Swedish documentaries and just making comments. And they're like, Oh my God, you know, more Swedish history than we know. (laughs) So. Well, you said something that really resonated with me, which is, when you're trying to acclimate to a culture, it's important to know the language. And one of the things that we want to display here with the Black Lives Matter radio show is how different cultures, even within the same United States, have these different languages and how how those things can be barriers in, 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 in the process of understanding each other to the point where we can trust one another and we can communicate effectively and we can express intent and we can express meaning. And I think the wonderful thing about your story is that you kind of cross a bunch of different lines that most people will look at as barriers. You cross the culture line, you cross the language line, and then you went into the universal language, which was music. So uh, I look at you, somewhat as a communication expert and <laughs> using using those skills now. So so yeah. tell us how you came from the, the the pop charts in Japan and London and Sweden back to the United States. Tell us that story. You know, um, <clears throat> I think that uh, regardless of who you are, number one, it's important that you know what your values are. This is, you know, what my mother has trained us to do our entire lives. She's like, I don't want you following people. I want you to be leaders. And you can't be leaders unless you know who you are. And she said, before I left to go to Sweden, she said, I trained you to have certain values. And when you leave this house, you take those values with you and you bring them back home, <laughs> okay. you know? So it's, it, the, the message was, you know who you are, you know, you know, your intentions on, in everything you want to do. She said, so I want you to just maintain your, your own personhood, you know? And so I think that helped me to remain grounded and help me to remain realistic about my goals. So when I got into the band and I started performing with them, I said to myself, I go, you know, right now I'm 25. And I said, I'm going to give this about five years. I had certain goals that I wanted to achieve during that time. And I said, if I have not achieved those goals within that time, I'm going to call it quits and I'm going to, you know, move on to the next thing. 
because in Sweden, I, I actually met a lot of African-Americans who were entertainers and who had been there for many years and who were still striving to make it, you know, in Europe. And I decided then, look, you know, I'm, I'm going to move on because I see how difficult it can be if you're in a, in a space where you're kind of in this uh, world where you don't know what you're going to do next. The only thing you know is I, I want to make it. Mm-hmm. So I also had my, you know, my family who had expectations of me and especially my grandmother. And my grandmother was, she was very proud of me. But at the same time, you know, I, I told my grandmother, I go, you know, when I leave Sweden, I really want to go to France finally. And I want to, you know, and my grandmother told me, she said, you don't need to go to no France. That <laughs> <laughs> sounds like my grandma. Yeah, exactly. She said, what you need to do. She said, now you went out there and got all that blah, 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 education. And um, she said, you need to come back here and you need to help your people. Wow. And so I, I was like, wow, you know, and my grandmother was a hundred percent right. So that's, that, that's, I think that was my mindset to not kind of, I don't want to say, you know, going to France would have been a waste of time, but I think my grandmother was saying there are some really important things that you can do and uh, they need to be done here. So you come back to the States. Yes. You become a scholar. Right. And yeah, which is which has been my dream. My grandmother used to call me the little professor ever since I I was, (laughs) I don't know, little kid, like three and four years old, because I had glasses is when I was about when I was four years old I got I think I got my first pair of glasses and immediately she started calling me the little professor (laughs) love it I love it Uh, just a side note I think it's so important that when we're teaching our children to set goals for themselves to ensure that we educate them on what it means to have self-fulfilling prophecy you know you kind of started off with you and your sister were outside you know looking at the planes go by and say, no, save me, save me. I, you know, I need to get out of here. And then, you know, the, yeah. you know, seeing uh, on TV, you know, uh, the documentary about California and, and hey, mom, I want to gotta go to California. And then, you know, learning languages and, and learning different yeah. cultures. And, and now you're back in the States and you're starting embarking on this new career as a scholar. And I read in your bio that you are or were a preschool teacher. So that must have been very interesting starting off. Oh, starting yeah. Off, well, all of this experience and then trying well, to come into these young, hungry minds. Tell us about that. I loved being a preschool teacher. And the thing is, uh, I, I kind of, <laughs> well, my first job out of high school was McDonald's, right? So I'm going to work every day. And I, because I am the only person working there who was, I was, I think I was over 18 at the time and I wasn't in school, not over 18, but I was over 17 and, and I I wasn't going to high school. So that meant I could work that they could schedule me like 
after, like after 10 o'clock at night, everybody else had to go home. So I'm working at this job and every night I'm like dog tired and I had to get up the next day and go to community college. And I literally, my knuckles were dragging. I was like, I can't do this every day. And one day I just like overslept. I just needed a nap. <laughs> <laughs> and I called my, my boss at McDonald's. I was like, okay, you know, I can't, I can't come into work tonight because I don't have a ride. I live two blocks from McDonald's. He was like, <laughs> he's like, well, I'm so sorry, Suzette. We just can't accept that. <laughs> he goes, do you mean you quit? I said, no, I mean, I can't come in tonight. He goes, that means you quit. I said, wow, really? So I hung up the phone. My mom came home and she was like, I was like, well, he said I quit. <laughs> Well, I decided that wasn't the right career move for me. So I found another job and that job was at a Montessori school down the street from my house. And uh, I worked, I walked in and I began working in the baby room and I had eight babies. And after, the, let's see, four o'clock every day, like from four to six, six for two hours I was alone by myself with these eight infants mm -hmm. from three months to uh one year and I you know that hey I had had no child care classes at all just kind of a little bit of babysitting here and there the lady who I worked with her name was Pamela Kobe and she was like an expert she came in there she whipped those diapers out and slapped them on the <laughs> like whoa <laughs> it was a whole new world but uh, this is what I learned I learned that you have to learn how to manage your world mm -hmm. you know the kids are going to be there you have to learn how to manage your time and get everything done you know feed eight kids diaper eight kids so that was kind of the beginning of me realizing that I could, you know, that it, you might see a situation that looks impossible, but once you have the right strategies in place, you can, you can get it done. So um, yeah, I taught preschool for like five years and that's before you even needed any kind of certifications. And then after that, I, I went, you know, to school at Cal State Fullerton, ironically not studying education. I studied political science. And uh, so, and my is that because my you boss, had aspirations of being an attorney, or you just wanted to know about how I loved work? I loved political science, and I mostly loved international, you know, relations. I wanted to work. My ultimate goal at that time was to work for the State Department. Okay. And so I was really determined to do that, and that's why I ended up going to Sweden to study Russian and East European studies. So that's kind of how I I you know, got to Sweden because they offered the program that I was interested in. How do you connect all these worlds? You, you know, from, from working in McDonald's <laughs> to, you know, to the Hanley's eight babies, you know, to oh, being yeah. a pop star, now being a scholar. How do you, how do you navigate? How do you tie all that up in a bow? Hmm. You know, I, I just would say that everyone's journey is unique. Mm. 
you know, I think people always look at someone else and they say, oh, that, their life is so great and they're doing such a great, you know, they have or they have money or they have this or, and I think, um, you know, I've always been the kind of person who was very, um, very unaware of what other people are doing, not disengaged from other people, but when I want to do something, I'm like, this is, this is for me. And I just move on it, you know? And I've never been afraid to do that. So when I walked into, you know, the, the, the Montessori school, I just kind of walked in there to see if, hey, is, you have a job? Is there something I can do? Uh, um, and my mother all has always, you know, my mother has been a kind of person that she does not allow any kind of barriers to hinder her, you know? And so I know I'm African-American. I know that there's discrimination. I know that there are people out there who might not uh, feel comfortable around me, but you know, my, um, when my soul and my spirit are speaking to me, it means that that's where I belong, regardless of what's going on with anyone else. And that's really how I feel. That, that is know. awesome. And that's awesome to hear you be able to state it that way and state it with such confidence and conviction. Tell me about good works. Oh, with Dr. Nakamura, that was the most amazing class. I'm very interested in, I'm very interested in positive momentum when people are doing good things. I know that, you know, we have challenges in the African-American community, but I think that we don't extract the good in our community enough. We don't extract all of the fantastic ideas that we are working on and all of the innovation that we have contributed to society. And so in that class, um, you know, my focus was on looking at the good work of black teachers. I'm a credentialed teacher. I'm African-American and I felt that it was a story that I had never read in any book. You know, when, when, when Hope and I, we were talking about the idea of good work and, you know, the field of psychology is predominantly a field of, you know, it's a field that is dominated by white people. You, people of European descent. And so their perspectives are, you know, the majority perspective in pretty much everything you read. And that's what I noticed. And I said, I think some other stories, time to tell some other stories in this field. So good work is a field within positive psychology, or it's an interest within the field of positive psychology. And Jean Nakamura is a pioneer in that field. And she has been working with uh, Csikszent Mihai, who is very well known for his work on flow. And so actually good work was the second class I took with her. I also took the class about flow. And so right now, you know, this idea of good work kind of, 
encapsulates how people contribute within the context of their professions uh, to the, the good work and the positive work that's going on. Well, listen, I am excited about all of the things, one of the things that you are doing, and I'm excited that you are pursuing your PhD. When, when are you due to uh, graduate from that program and, and get your, uh, your thesis or what is it, your dissertation approved? When, it, when is, what is the schedule of that so we can be rooting for you? That's a whole nother conversation. Okay, <laughs> all right, good enough, good enough. But I, I can tell you, it's a really good question because um, a lot of people really don't understand about how the, the dissertation process works or how the PhD process works, but you take all of your classes and then you have to write a proposal and then it has to be approved. And then once they approve it, you can do your research. And once you do your research, then you have to write about the research. And once you finish the research, they have to approve everything you wrote about. <laughs> so right now I'm actually uh, going into my, well, I'm, I'm in my second year right now. And I'm estimating I have a, two more years. So I'm hoping my prayer is that I'll be finishing in 2024. We, we are rooting for you. And I know that you will accomplish that goal. I was listening to Black Soliloquy. Oh, and, how did and, you like it? And, and I have to tell you, I have a large, uh, a large catalog of music that exists in my head, right? Okay. In fact, I used to work for an organization that was musical in, in its foundation, right? We used to do okay. ring, ringtones and, and other different types of oh, uh, things that you that? would put on your devices. So I, I love music and I love different genres of music. And I was thinking to myself, the, the best compliment I could pay to you on Black Soliloquy was it brought to mind uh, Jamiroquai, it brought to mind uh, Living Color, uh, it brought yeah. to mind Terrence Trent Darby. And so I was like, wow, I, you know, I just kind of, so you know, allowed my mind to go back. And, and there was some, some poetic energy about it that also made me think about Neo-Soul. Made me think about the Erica Badu's and uh, the yeah. Jill Scotts. I'm, I'm a huge Jill and Scott fan. Uh, that is my celebrity crest. My wife knows about it. She knows. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so you won't get in trouble. I won't get in trouble uh, when this <laughs> airs. But tell us about Black Soliloquy. How did that come mm. to, in, in, into being? Well, first of all, I am, you know, I am like, I don't want to say a fan. I am a child of Nikki Giovanni. I love that woman just so much. And when when I was uh, about nine or ten, we had an entire basement full of LPs. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyway, uh, my mom got this record by Nikki Giovanni. And I'm telling you, when I heard Nikki Giovanni's voice and I heard her poetry, it, that record no longer belonged to my mother. <laughs> um, Nikki Giovanni wrote this poem, I'm trying to think of the name of it right now. Um, I'm so sad, I can't think of it. But anyway, this poem was about uh, her um, being 
you know, this kind of, uh, it, it kind of put you in the mind of an Egyptian goddess. And mm -hmm. she was like, uh, anyway, so uh, I used to listen to that other uh, recording that was with James Cleveland. Mm -hmm. And the name of the poem was Peace Be Still. And that was something else that I listened to over and over again. But she is the essence of, of my poetry because as I started writing poetry when at 10 years old, when I heard her music. And so the Black, Black Magic Soliloquy was written right during the Watts riots in the 90s. Uh, I was not living, I wasn't in the United States. I was actually in Sweden at the time. And I was just, had so many emotions inside of me about what was going on. And I was so far away, you know, and I wanted a way to kind of communicate how I was feeling. And I actually did not write that to go on the, the rec, on the, on the CD that we were working on. I wrote it for myself, but it just so happened one night I was in the studio and we had some kind of loop going on with the beats and with this uh, cello sound. And I was like, you know, I, I wanna try something. And I took out my, my book that I write all of my lyrics in. And I said, you guys listen to this and tell me what you think. And as I started reading it off, the guys were like, so blown away. They're, oh, okay, yeah. And then, you know, they go to work. They start mixing in all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and, you know, and then we called in some guys uh, from our uh, house band to come and play live. Everything you hear on that recording was played live. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, it sounds fantastic. It's so rich and, and, and then, it has such emotion to it. Yeah. The other thing that happened, I just thought about it, is that that year was the year that Nelson Mandela was released from Robben Island. Mm. Now, Nelson Mandela made his first trip outside of South Africa. His first trip was to Sweden because he was coming to visit his friend Oliver Tambo, who I believe had also been in prison with him. Mm -hmm. So when he came to visit Oliver Tambo, Oliver Tambo was very ill and, you know, he knew he was not going to live long. So he uh, came to speak at the Uppsala Cathedral in the town where I live. And I had a really great friend from South Africa her name was Pat Infiketo, and her aunt is actually a member of the South African Parliament, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, so we go see Nelson Mandela, and that was also the other inspiration. I was like, this is just too much, right. you know? So the other part of that song has a lot to do when I'm talking about you know, the, you know, the deaths and the, and the fact and the, and the, you know, the things that black women have to deal with in dealing with the deaths of their children. I was definitely thinking about South Africa and about LA and how much in common those experiences of those women are. So that was definitely. Well, I want you to prepare yourself, Susie. Here's why, because I'm going to take that song 
and I'm going to put it on my social media sites. And oh I'm because God. I want <laughs> everybody to enjoy that song and take from it what I took from it. And wow. I'm going to state right now, uh, given that you're a person who believes in self fulfilling prophecies, I would imagine you'll get a couple phone calls, you know, wondering where, calls. where is this music coming from and why is this the first <laughs> time I've heard it and how come you haven't released it and how can you yeah. haven't re released it? Uh, but listen, I want to thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us on Black Lives Matter Radio this evening. Uh, I certainly love the conversation. I could talk to you all night uh, about a number of things, but um, as is our tradition, uh, the last question of the evening is reserved for Hope. So Hope, over to you to uh, ask the last question and then to close us out. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Susie. This has been such a great conversation. I love how the two of you just shine together. It's beautiful. But, you know, I really want you to talk just a little bit because um, I want to add you to our cover story for January 2021, which is the, what's next in the pandemic. And I know that you have a passion, obviously, for children and education. Talk to us a little bit about what's going on in the Black community with kids that are in lockdown and can't go to school, um, that don't sometimes have Wi-Fi, or there's like many, many children in the family struggling to get onto Wi-Fi. What, what do you see is happening currently? And also, how do you see that playing out in the future of education for these kids who are potentially losing a couple of years of their education? Part of my research on Black teachers is also about Black children. And uh, the dilemma that Black children uh, face in the educational system, it was already difficult for African-American children before the pandemic. Uh, but now just gaining basic access to their education because they can't walk down the street to their neighborhood school has created a great deal of difficulty. There are two things that go on with the school. Number one, the school offers a, uh, you know, a care factor. You know, educators are there. And when kids go to school every day, kids are seen. Their conditions are noticed. If there is an issue, uh, oftentimes teachers who are caring about their students can address those issues. The, the, the other thing is that children are fed on a regular basis. And we do know that African-American children experience higher levels of food insecurity. And those meals that they receive at school, that breakfast and that lunch might be the only two meals that they receive. And so those are two really significant things that are impacting the fact that they're not going to school to the school building every day, let alone their lack of access to technology. The third thing is the protective factor, the security factor that children gain when they go to school. Because we are seeing, and I saw a report on, I don't know, I believe it was on CNN. Well, I think it was some kind of administrator who was literally walking around a neighborhood, knocking on children's doors, whom she had not seen since the beginning of the pandemic. And so, you know, every day she had to investigate if these children were still living in the home, if they were able to access the technology and access school. 
So, uh, you know, that is a really big issue, you know, let alone uh, we've got kids who are committing suicide uh, because of isolation. And we have more, you know, we have more child abuse. All of those things are things where the school acts as an intermediary for the care of young children. So from that standpoint, I believe that, yes, physically, health-wise, you know, children, well, uh, African-Americans, people of color have been affected at a higher degree. But I really need people to start talking about what's happening with children, because those are the ones who in the long term, are going to see the greatest long-term effects. Like you said, missing out on a couple of years of school is a really big deal when you are in kindergarten. And the next time you start school, you're going to be maybe seven years old before you enter a classroom. So all of those things mean that we should start doing things now and not wait for the results to come. You know, th this is the one, uh, you know, problem with our decentralized education system. You know, we don't have a central way of addressing the needs of students in general, not just African-American students. So, um, you know, just like the pandemic was not taken seriously, the issues of children of color are not being taken seriously either. And I, and I think uh, it's going to be to our detriment. And you know, remember when I did my presentation in Dr. Nakamura's class, uh, I'm speaking in front of a class of, you know, I'm, you know, I was the only African-American student in the classroom and I was doing a presentation on black teachers. And I experienced a very high level of disinterest in my subject. And they they were not uh, unashamed of demonstrating their disinterest. And I told them, I go, you know, you have to understand, these are not just my children. These are your children. And those very same children who they wanted to discount were the same kids marching in the Black Lives Matter movement. And so I think it's time for everyone to wake up and realize we don't live in silos anymore. We are all connected. And if we don't start responding to the needs of the children in our community, it's going to have a definite impact on our own future. Well said, well said. Yeah, Susie, you're amazing. And I look forward to doing lots of cool things with you. I am so excited about our work yeah. together. Yeah, so. And, and Mr. Farmer, the same thing. I'm, I am just very excited about meeting you today. Bless and you, bless I, you. The, the interview was just amazing. So <laughs> just to let you know, I am an interview expert, right? Because I was in like 100 interviews in Sweden. I'm sure. And, <laughs> and you have done just an amazing job. I I can't give you, a, you know, higher accolades. It was great. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. It means a yeah. lot. It does. Well, Susie, you'll be back. Um, Incandescent Kids has your name written all over it. 
That is something you and I have been talking about for a couple of years now. And uh, so we'll, we'll just keep that going. That's a, that's definitely a 2021 initiative where we launched the newspaper for kids by kids. And we invite teachers who are experienced to teach and tutor kids everywhere. And hopefully that will provide a solution to some of these issues. Yeah. To some of these issues that are going on. Sorry, I did not come with a list of solutions today because I'm a solution oriented person, but um. I yeah, go ahead. You were gonna no, say I was gonna to say don't don't worry <laughs> none about that. We would definitely have plenty of time and space to talk about solutions okay. and, and attack those. But uh, I I this it, it was important because what Hope and I do and and what we would do for you and with you is just get the word out, just you know create okay. awareness around some of the very specific issues that that we're dealing with in our communities. Yeah, definitely, and I appreciate your work. And, you know, I, you know, if you ever want any ideas for folks for the show, let me know. Okay. Oh, we'll be in touch for sure. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. And we'll continue this conversation for sure. Thank you so much, Susie Love. In fact, we're going to put Black Lives, I don't know why I didn't do this before. You were the cover story of our July 2020 issue of Incandescent Women magazine telling your fantastic history. And that I love that you got to talk about it again today, but we're gonna put it on Incandescent Radio so that people can listen to it and Tony can share it from there. So that'll be excellent. Yeah, we'll just keep the love going. Well, <laughs> keep the I love going, we're... exactly. <laughs> All right, we'll finish our episode right now. Thank you both. Uh, you are listening to our to our wonderful listeners. You are listening to the Black Lives Matter radio show on Incandescent Radio. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs with your host, Tony Farmer, and tonight's guest, Suzette Love. We will talk to you next Sunday. So that's all for today's episode of the Black Lives Matter radio show on incandescentradio.com. We have an amazing lineup of future guests, just like you heard on today's show. So be sure to tune in for another episode and tell your friends about us so they can listen too. If you or someone you know should be a guest on our show, send me an email, hopecatsgibbs at gmail.com, and we'll be in touch. Again, this is blacklivesmatterradioshow.com on the Incandescent Radio Network. We look forward to talking to you. Until then, stay safe and be well.